Hello, this is Media Files, a podcast about the emerging themes and issues in the Australian media. I'm Andrew Dodd, the Director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Today, the newspapers that change the debate on clerical sex abuse. In both the US and Australia, newspapers have played a crucial role in exposing the extent of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. In the US, it was the Boston Globe Spotlight team that revealed the scale of abuse in the Boston Archdiocese. And in Australia, the Newcastle Herald uncovered the extent of wrongdoing by both priests and the bishops who protected them. So today we bring together the editor-at-large of the Boston Globe and the former leader of its spotlight team, Walter Robinson, with the former editor and now managing editor of the Newcastle Herald, Chad Watson, to discuss what it takes to lead these difficult and groundbreaking investigations. In both cases, the teams were small, but the journalists were focused on the difficult job of finding out what happened. At the Newcastle Herald, as Chad Watson explains, the team was very small indeed, consisting almost entirely of its senior reporter, Joanne McCarthy. Our investigative team around campaigning for a Royal Commission in Australia came down to one woman, Joanne McCarthy, and she's a real stickler for documents. And when she came to me with the idea um, that we should pursue a Royal Commission, she actually did it in writing in a column. Part of that column was the line, there will be a Royal Commission into clergy abuse in Australia because there must be. I remember reading that line before it went to print and I thought, yep, tomorrow I'll talk to Joanne about that. And at that stage, you know, Joanne had already been writing about clergy abuse for 10 years. She'd probably written, you know, 500 stories about it. And we thought, well, what are we going to do about it? How can we take it to that next level? So from then on, it was all about the planning and it was about how we can then connect with the community and take the community along with us because it was a very um, divisive topic. Hello, it's um, Joanne McCarthy from the Newcastle Herald. I was at the Royal Commission today, which is uh, looking at the Newcastle Anglican Diocese, the 11th day of hearings about how the diocese in the past has handled child sexual abuse allegations. We heard... Uh, Anecdotally, um, this, well, this scourge had been bubbling along in our society. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I felt that I was the target demographic. Um, a lot of my friends who I'd gone to Catholic schools with, and I'd, like Joanne, I'd um, been brought up Catholic I uh, had Catholic schooling for 13 years. You know, we we would joke sometimes, you know, bums against the wall, brother so-and-so's on the crawl or father what's-his-name's on the crawl. Um, but, you know, it became very real to me um, when a firefighter by the name of John Perona, um, he was a couple of years older than me, I went to school with his brother, and I'd actually done some work for his dad as a work experience um, many years earlier. Prominent Catholic family, very well respected. And John took his own life and left a suicide note that talked about being in too much pain. And it turned out that pain 
had come from, you know, being abused by a, you know, teacher at our, you know, one of our biggest Catholic high schools. So these things um, all hit home um, with that line that Joanne wrote. So we, you know, sat down together uh, and, you know, worked out our next step. Well, that's partly what I'd like to ask about, about how you give that support and encouragement. So in your context, Robbie, you're, you're heading up a team that is supporting reporters doing this and is doing the work itself. What sort of support are you looking at putting in place to make it happen? Well, uh, on on this project and any other, um, it's good to know how to manage up, uh, to make sure that at every step you take, no matter what it might cost the newspaper, and in, certainly in legal fees, uh, we cost the paper I think close to a million dollars, uh, that you get buy-in on that from the senior editors. Now, in our case, that uh, was pretty easy to do because it was our new editor on his very first day who asked the Spotlight team uh, to look into the case of this one single priest and to find out, uh, if we could, uh, how much the archdiocese actually knew about his crimes over over the years. So um, getting bringing that story home, uh, I mean, took a lot of effort and it took, uh, obviously, right off the bat, uh, uh, a, a major detour when we discovered that it was much more extensive than the, than the one priest. But uh, uh, we didn't have uh, what you, the, the challenges you would typically have in convincing uh, the editor or the senior editors to to let us do this since uh, essentially uh, uh, it, it, was, it was the editor's idea. And in this case, in the Newcastle Herald, it was your idea to support Joanne, so you are the editor. But are you having to manage up as well to your bosses? Yeah, at stages, you know, it, it can get um, quite lonely, I think, being an investigative reporter and likewise being the editor uh, for an investigative reporter you can get have all the legal checks, um, but you also put yourself through these moral checks, through these uh, <laughs> ethical dilemmas about what you should write, who you should write about, and when you should write it. Is there someone above you to whom you're referring this to? Or are you making these decisions on your own? Um, there's people above me who's, or, you know, who are available for discussions, but it does come down to you if, as the editor of the masthead um, with where you want to take it. Joanne, Joanne and I, some stages we didn't see eye to eye about where we were taking it or at least the pace that we were taking it. You know, she's a very courageous and ethical operator and, you know, her tenaciousness, you know, is often hard to ignore, but she does also take guidance when you're making those decisions about some of the most, you know, high, highest profile pillars of your society, you know, um, though it comes to crunch time and the work that we were doing was under utmost scrutiny. Um, you know, we had legal threats from the Catholic Church. We had priests, you know, from the pulpit mentioning the Newcastle Herald and um, encouraging parishioners. I was actually in mass myself um, and now I don't go to church much anymore. Um, when the priests mentioned that there was a statement at the back of the church to be collected, about reports in the Newcastle Herald, um, you know, and 
I've had, you know, friendships fracture and I think there's been elements of my family. Uh, I have people in my family who are part of religious orders and, you know, we've had some <laughs> quite frank discussions uh, around that as well. Um, but, you know, I think to back your reporter when you're doing this kind of campaign or investigative journalism, it, uh, a lot of mud gets thrown. <laughs> but I think if you, you know, have that faith in anything, have your faith in that reporter because, you know, particularly in this case with Joanne, her research, the amount of interviews that she did, the amount of documents that she discovered uh, was extraordinary. Deference to Robbie, um, you know, we called our campaign Shine the Light and Joanne has become like a beacon for um, victims of clergy abuse. They are attracted to her because she believes them. They want to tell their story through her. And these are some of the most vulnerable people, people who perhaps haven't even told their stories to their own families, but they sought Joanne out, you know, and Joanne being the beacon for these people, you know, she she gets stages where she's burnt out herself. You know, she's carrying this. She's a very empathetic person and she carries that with her. Well, there are, there are a few points there. Some of that stuff that the Newcastle Herald experienced of backlash from the community, was that going on in Boston? Well, we certainly expected it. Uh, and there was a little bit of it that maybe uh, was more background noise than anything else for the first few weeks. Um, you know, we had a conservative cardinal who very much disliked the newspaper and his conservative base, uh, which dis didn't much like the Globe for a lot of different reasons, because largely because of its uh, liberal editorial page stance. Uh, but, but what happened, uh, which worked to our great benefit, is that we started out with damning documents. It was a very, from, from the get-go, our very first story was uh, pretty breathtaking in the documentation that we had, the church's own documents. Uh, and then uh, within a couple of weeks, the most powerful uh, Catholic members of the community uh, began to abandon the cardinal. And his conservative base, who after all were families who had raised their children in the church, uh, were horrified that the cardinal and his predecessors had put their own children at risk. And uh, so there wasn't that much room for people to say, uh, you got it wrong, you're picking on the church, you're anti-Catholic. There was a little bit of that, and there still is, in fact. But uh, it's pretty much uh, at the very, very margins. And uh, this is, uh, uh, I think, very true across the United States um, because of all the disclosures. I get the sense that in Australia, it's not quite at the point where the enti entire body politic and um, the most uh, influential uh, people are all publicly appalled at what the church has done. There seem to be, as I get it, still a fair number of people who are saying, well, I'm not sure whether I believe this or how could such and such, without mentioning any names, of course, because we can't, 
how could such and such have done that? Um, we had a little bit of that, but it was sort of confined to a, maybe a two or three week period. If there was anywhere in this country where we would have reached the tipping point where there is overwhelming evidence against the diocese, it would be either Newcastle or Ballarat. Yeah, and Newcastle, it's both the Catholic and Anglican churches as well. You know, there were elements coming to the paper complaining of pedophile priest fatigue. Isn't it enough already? Hasn't the church copped enough? But as these stories were told, you know, stories about men of God abusing the highest authority, our readership responded very favourably. I think the Royal Commission found there were uh, 80 perpetrators across, you know, half a century in Newcastle across those, both those denominations. As you've said, um, pedophile priests are not exactly page turners. So you as editor are having to make a decision about whether to pursue a story where there is now something like pedophile priest fatigue. So you're weighing up the merits of this story on its public interest versus the audience's willingness to keep indulging and reading this stuff. How do you make that decision? I think this concept of the greater good, it's often hard to grasp. And we probably took moralising rather than a journalistic approach to a lot of what we did. And there were many nights that, you know, I was, you know, second-guessing what we were doing, you know, and in some ways, you know, I was afraid. Not afraid, but, you know, just determined to (laughs) make sure that we had all the facts right, had it, you know, had everything lined up. Um, Because, as I said, I think maybe it turned and people have lost a lot of belief in the pillars of our society, whether that be the church or government. And, you know, maybe it's time for the media to stand up. Our newsrooms may be shrinking because of, you know, financial necessity, but I think maybe our appetite for this kind of journalism, this kind of campaigning, this kind of advocacy, public service, social journalism uh, should be increasing we can, you know, particularly where I come from, from regional newspapers, it's our localism, our parochialism, it's our connection with our community which will enable us, you know, to turn some of these tables. How do you deal with moral dilemmas? For example, the case of reporting on a dead priest where there are allegations that, that he's been a perpetrator. The family uh, enjoys a good reputation so does the priest, and then an allegation or a series of them surface. Do you publish? And if so, how do you do it? It's a good question. Uh, Just uh, to briefly uh, follow up uh, on what Chad said, uh, quite early on, after God knows how many stories about individual victims and what had happened to them at hands of this priest or that priest, uh, we realized that the the larger story was... uh, uh, not so much the individual victimization, but how it came to happen, how the bishops and the cardinals uh, facilitated it. And and it was that reporting that helped us avoid the sort of notion of priest fatigue uh, because we did uh, focus more on, on the more senior uh, officials and what they did not do. Uh, when we uh, talked uh, uh, last evening, I mentioned the, the horrific case of this one priest who was in charge of young girls uh, 
who were going to be nuns, and he persuaded them that he was Christ on earth, and he took sexual advantage of them, and he actually believed he was Christ on earth. And as horrific as that story was, it actually ran inside the paper. It wasn't on the front page at all because that day we had uh, uh, some major story about the cardinal knowing about a number of of cases, and I'm I'm sorry to break away like that, but on that other issue, uh, it's one that we wrestled with, and that is, if uh, the perpetrator is dead and can't defend uh, himself, I almost said himself and her or herself, but we're talking about himself. We had uh, a fairly uh, rigid protocol about naming any priest dead or alive, and that was, we felt we needed to have at least two victims ordinarily hoping they were from different periods of the priest's career and some other corroborative evidence, like we knew he had been sent for treatment or he had been moved around every two or three years, which was a bit of a dead giveaway that that they were, they were trying to hide his crimes. And uh, we had uh, a number of cases of dead priests that we did name because we felt the evidence was strong enough and the stories of the victims... Uh, needed to be told. And very often in the cases of those dead priests, those stories implicated higher ups. I should also add that because of the ruling by one judge in Massachusetts, when there was a dead priest and allegations, most of the time we had that priest's personnel file. And very often the strongest corroborative evidence was, was to be found in the church's own files. Did you have similar dilemmas, similar problems yeah, very much have uh, faced those dilemmas. And thankfully what it came down to was Joanne not only finding the victims and in, interviewing them separately often, um, but getting information from the church that they had paid some compensation to those victims, which, uh, you know, put my mind at ease somewhat um, going to print with these names. Although no one in that case is going to defame you because under Australian law, the dead can't. Yeah, but that's not not, as, not necessarily the, the point. There's not just a legal, legal approach, there's the ethical approach that you have to take to this. And there has been some frustration um, from victims' advocates and from Joanne McCarthy herself that we were a regional um, newspaper, regional masthead, writing about these stories for many years and then there wasn't get much play in the metro media space. You know, we took it upon ourselves then to approach these uh, metropolitan outlets with ideas about how we were, you know, how we were running stories and why we were running stories. And to the extent that it was and to the, um, the echelons that it went to uh, and eventually turned that round. And I think having eventually that metropolitan support helped sway things for us and that helped that groundswell for, you know, um, Julia Gillard to eventually announce the Royal Commission. Both of you have alluded to the many legal issues that you face taking on these kinds of stories and how it's incredibly important to have the documents in place. What are the key things you've learnt about dealing with legal matters in pursuit of these stories? Well, we started uh, with a legal matter looking at the one priest and the, the judge in the case involving the civil lawsuits against this priest, John Gagan, had sealed his personnel file from public view. 
because the church maintained it might someday have uh, an argument before a higher court that it was exempt from civil law on this, which is kind of a, a nutty notion when you think about it. Um, so initially, we went to court and filed a motion essentially on behalf of the public asking the court to open up those files. And in doing so, we were in effect suing the Catholic Church, which was a kind of a, a major step to take. And we didn't know at that point whether we'd be successful. And ultimately, we, we were. Um, and then down the road, as was the case, depending upon which priest or we were writing about, we dealt with the ethical questions uh, that you mentioned. We, we had our own standards, but in many cases, uh, our First Amendment attorney did pre-publication review to make sure that legally the newspaper would not be in any way vulnerable to a defamation uh, suit for what we were about to, uh, to publish. So it was a long road we traversed, but uh, our, our attorney was kind of always right there, and he's quite good. Well, he'd want to be. <laughs> Chad, what, what were the key lessons you learned? I think Joanne has written more than a thousand stories now about child abuse by the clergy. In many ways, she's become part of the story, and it's her research, her investigations. She's often you know, shared that with police, who in turn triggered their own investigations. Um, there have been times when we have published against our legal advice um, because we were so sure about what we were writing. And um, that is, you know, a big leap. You know, if there was an editor's school, um, they'd probably tell you you shouldn't launch a campaign, you know you can't win. But um, taking on a campaign where we have, you know, in Joanne, avowed atheist and feminists taking on two of our most patriarchal, you know, institutions in the Catholic Church and the police force initially, uh, <laughs> You know, you've got to know what you're in for. And, um, yeah, we came uh, quite an intricate approach to how we were unfurling this and, um, yeah, we definitely had the lawyer on call. Well, Philip Wilson, who's just been brought down through your investigations, came at you with everything he had, didn't he? Yes, uh, early on in relation to another story and involving the secret defrocking of a priest. You know, we heard from the... Uh, Church's lawyers, again, it was a situation where, you know, Joanne had the documents, had the research, and then we um, pressed ahead. But I do remember that night, you know, sitting there with Joanne, she said, you know, so are we going? And as I said, yes, we're going. But um, I think I held my breath for the rest of the, rest of the night. Yeah, which must take its toll on you. Now, another thing I wanted to ask is, does serendipity, does luck play a part in this at all? Luck uh, plays a part in every good story. And I could tell you a story about luck. So our assignment from the new editor was pretty simple. Go look at this one priest and try to find out, or maybe I think he put it this way, I expect you to find out what the church knew and for how long they knew about his behavior over these 30 years. And there'd been a lot of speculation about that. 
so we we took that. This was the assignment of the new editor in his very first day at the Globe. So I went down to tell my troops uh, that we were going to pivot and go into an area where we had never been. I mean, we made our living doing mostly stories about government corruption and malfeasance. And we didn't have a single file anywhere in all of our file cabinets that had the word priest or church on it. So we were literally starting uh, from scratch. And as we talk through how we're going to get at this one priest, uh, I was a bit apprehensive because it was a new boss. I said, look, let's do this. Let's assemble a list of everybody we can think of who's ever had anything to do with the sexual abuse of children in Massachusetts, and let's call them all and see what we can find out. And the reason I did that was, frankly, because I was a little bit terrified of, of the new boss and not living up to his expectations and God knows what the repercussions might have been. But by taking that approach rather than sort of the rifle shot approach at the one priest, sort of it was within uh, a week that we found lawyers who told us, so it's not just Father Jack Gagan. There's many other priests and the church made the secret settlements and uh, two of the lawyers called it hush money. And we said, oh, my God. So I, I, I now think of uh, fear of the boss as being one of journalism's most noble impulses. So that's how we, we went from one priest to this much, much larger population uh, that was hidden. And finally, the other thing that these stories need, ultimately, is people to tell their own stories. Is it difficult at times to remember the impact that you're having on the people who are telling those stories? And how do you put them in your thinking so that you never forget the effect this has on them? I actually take some encouragement from talking to those victims because they show their gratitude um, for what the Newcastle Herald has done, for what Joanne McCarthy has done in getting their stories out there, uncovering the truth, not just their truth, but the truth. What Joanne did transcends traditional journalism in a lot of ways, at least, you know, in this country. Um, we would publish a news story from Joanne alongside an opinion piece. And that opinion piece um, would be analysis, background commentary about very complex legal issues and about very sensitive personal and cultural issues uh, on the same page. I think, you know, there was once, a, you know, once upon a time, newspapers were held in high esteem for setting the daily agenda. But I think perhaps, you know, in this 24-7 news cycle and Fake news or artificially inflated news, um, maybe it's time that we started uh, shifting the agenda. Robbie? Well, the victim uh, challenge uh, is a serious one for journalists, how to deal with people who are so vulnerable. Uh, when we started out, we, we, we started to network through a very tiny uh, a victim's network. Uh, the fellow who ran it was trying to help us and put us in touch with victims. And uh, 
we spent a lot of time uh, with a good number of them, and I'm talking maybe between 12 and 20 victims, uh, about how we could tell their stories if they would tell us their stories in a way that would protect their identity in many cases uh, in a way that we thought and they came to think uh, would tell their stories in a way that would prompt other people to come forward. And uh, the, the argument that we often made uh, that was successful was, do you know, if we can tell your story, then maybe this, what happened to you, won't happen to some children uh, down the line. And that, that was almost always a clincher. And then when we began to publish and this became public, we were inundated. I mean, we had hundreds. We had 300 victims just in Boston alone who contacted us in the first two or three weeks after we published. And, and there were many of them who, uh, first of all, we, we never kept an exact tally on this, but more than half, we were the first people they had ever told. And uh, they all thought that they were the only ones that this had ever happened to. And for them to find out that they were part of this enormous, uh, uh, enormous number of people who had all been victimized in in pretty much the same way, uh, was powerfully affecting for them. Many of them wanted us to publish their stories with their names in the next day's paper, and we had to, contrary to the normal journalistic impulse, we had to say, "Don't no, wait a minute. I don't think." It's good for you to have your name in the paper right now, particularly until at least you tell members of your own family. And uh, we were we were so concerned early on that I called an organization called the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, which has 24-7 uh, professionals who help victims of sexual assault. And... Uh, Instead of running just our contact information in the paper every day, you know, if you know of information, call the Spotlight team. Uh, we also published, if you would like to talk to somebody who might help you with your problem, call this organization. So by doing that, we actually gave up some stories because people, instead of calling us, called uh, counselors. Uh, so it was a very difficult um, and on a case-by-case -case basis, as I'm sure you handled it, trying to decide whose story to tell and how to tell it and whether it was our considered judgment that having that person's name involved was good just for us or good for them. And it had to be good for both before we'd, we'd uh, put people's names in the paper. Such an abuse of power, what happened, um, you know, not just in Boston and Newcastle, but around the world as far as the uh, Catholic clergy is concerned, that we found that by giving um, these victims a loud halo, it, it kind of gave them a sense of empowerment with it. Like R Robbie's experience, people were telling their stories for the first time, sometimes without having shared it with their families. So right up until deadline and sometimes, you know, past deadline, we would uh, have their welfare very much in mind. Well, at that point, 
Chad Watson and Walter Robinson, thank you very much for sharing your stories with us. Thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Walter Robbie Robinson, the editor-at-large of the Boston Globe and former leader of its Spotlight team, and Chad Watson, the managing editor of the Newcastle Herald. Media Files is produced in association with The Conversation. You can subscribe on iTunes or on Pocket Casts. Production by Andy Hazel. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time for Media Files. Media Files.